Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Tim Kreider, whose latest collection of essays is I Wrote This Book Because I Love You. Earlier collections of essays, of cartoons, We Learn Nothing, why Do They Kill Me?, and a collection of your political mm-hmm. cartoons, The Pain, When Will It End?, which had a 12-year run on alternative weeklies yeah. at one time. Uh, before we get into the essays, why did you stop doing the political cartoons? Well, I should say I didn't start out to be a political cartoonist. That first book, The Pain, When Will It End?, isn't political. They are... Uh, sort of absurdist non sequiturs in the manner of B. Clive and a Bay Area cartoonist who is my favorite. I felt involuntarily conscripted into political cartooning because 9-11 happened. Well, the election was stolen. 9-11 happened. We went to war against a country that had nothing to do with 9-11. And it, it just felt inexcusably frivolous to do art about anything else. But, you know, you can get burned out on politics. I mean, to be a political cartoonist, you have to be creatively angry every week, and that's bad for you. I used to describe it as like the liver metabolizing alcohol, turning anger into humor every week. But that's bad for the liver, it turns out. I got burned out on politics, and just just meeting a weekly deadline for 12 years was a lot. There's uh, actually a piece in, I wrote this book, Because I Love You, an essay about 9-11 and your response to it, Our War on Terror. Our War on Terror, yeah. Uh, when did you write that? Well, I wrote all these essays, all the long ones, that is. Some of the shorter ones are reprints, but I wrote all the long ones over the last four years. So it was with some distance on those events. But it was before Trump was elected. It was, yes, which made that whole time look almost like an ideal by comparison. What I noticed in Our War on Terror is there's a, mm-hmm. um, almost an echo or a shadow behind it because everything you're saying about what the Bush administration did mm-hmm. parallels what we're seeing now. Yeah. Well, as I say in that essay, there's sort of a pattern as predictable as a disease's ideology to these things. It's the same time in all countries and eras. In a way, you know, looking back, it seems like we didn't know how good we had it then. Bush at least was trying. (laughs) That's something a friend of mine said during the Bush years. He said, at least Nixon was trying. But it turns out Bush was trying too. He failed. He did everything exactly wrong. But I feel like on some level he felt he was doing what was good for the country. I don't think Donald Trump cares at all. But yeah, and it inadvertently gives that essay some sort of resonance that things got so much worse. But it was the same general feeling of dissonance of feeling like your own perceptions were, I, I call them fugitive <laughs> in the essay, that, that official reality has become completely detached from your perception of reality. There's an element of that, of course, in all of the political cartoons as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, those political cartoons were s- sort of me and my 
drinking buddies pitted against the Bush administration. <laughs> um, and it was like plain old ground level human reality versus official reality. There's um, a not very good interview with you I'd found. The interviewer asked if you were ever actually censored, and you said that you were censored twice, but not permanently, that they ran later, 9-11 one and then another one. The one on 9-11 was actually a rather boosterish and patriotic cartoon, but it involved a visual representation of the World Trade Centers, and they wouldn't run it the week after 9-11. And it was not the editor's call, it was the publisher's. He felt that it would, quote, jeopardize our standing in the community to run any representation of the World Trade Centers in a humorous context at that point. Yeah, irony is dead. I remember that moment. (laughs) Yes, it was briefly dead. Well, it's dead all over again now. (laughs) Uh, It's been obviated, rather. So you, you did these cartoons. During that period, were you also writing? Yeah, I went to school for writing. It's what I studied in college. But back then, which is to say the late 80s, getting a a degree in writing meant you were going to write short stories and then work your way up to a novel and try and get that published. And I never had the first idea how to go about writing fiction. What I wanted to write then is pretty much what I write now, but there wasn't a market for that. There wasn't even a name really for creative nonfiction. There were like personal essays like E.B. White wrote, but Pretty much nobody else did. So I just got sidetracked into being a cartoonist because, well, you know, you, when you're young, you do the first thing they give you positive reinforcement for, and they paid me 20 bucks a week. Well, <laughs> you can draw, I mean. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was, I was, you know, medium good at both writing and drawing, but, you know, you do what they pay you for or, or what they'll publish you for when you're young. No, I didn't ever stop writing. I wrote volumes of letters in those years, which I think is how I really learn to write. I published some pieces with Film Quarterly. Um, those are my first nationally published things. And they were film. On, on film. Yeah, yeah, they were film analysis. Uh, what films were you, were you looking at? You never, of course, forget the first thing you get published. It's always going to be the most important <laughs> event in your life, even if you win the Pulitzer later. And that was a, an essay on Eyes Wide Shut, which came out in 99 and was a very perplexing film. Like most of Kubrick's films, they're initially, everyone's just nonplussed by them. It was very bizarre because it turned out to be, of course, his last film. Yeah. But he spent so much time creating, what was it, Greenwich Village mm-hmm. and making the streets a little wider for some reason. It didn't seem to make any sense and it an orgy that wasn't an orgy. Mm-hmm. You know, there's nobody's quite as provincial as the New York press. Uh, and New, New Yorkers are outraged when New York is depicted on film as not looking like New York, even though they, you know, create caricatures of small town America all the time. I mean, it's not supposed to be real New York. That whole film is kind of irreal. It's a, it's a dreamscape. It's hard to say what in that film is really supposed to be happening. Tim Kreider, before we move on to the writing itself, One more question. Where did you go to school? Did you want to be a writer? Did you draw as a kid? Yeah. Like I said, I was maybe equally good at writing and drawing, like medium good. I I don't think I wasn't like the best artist in my high school art class. I was pretty good. Uh, But at some point, I decided that I would rather be 
a writer, and I'm not sure why. You know, we make these major decisions about our lives when we're young, like maybe 14 or in college at, at best, and you don't appreciate what the implications will be, which is that your earning power will plateau around $20 a week. <laughs> right. And, and what got you into the cartooning specifically? Oh, to answer your original question, I went to Johns Hopkins University, the writing seminars program, and then attempted to write fiction for a while and could not. And I, you know, like I said, you uh, respond when you're young to the first positive reinforcement you get, no matter how meager. And I was drawing mini comics, as we called them back in the 90s. You know, you stapled them and printed them up yourself. And uh, I just was putting them out for no real reason because, you know, because you do that stuff when you're young. You know, you're right. not making any money anyway. Baltimore is a small enough town that if you just persist in doing the same artistic thing, eventually people take note of you. And uh, when a guy named Annie Markowitz took over as the editor of the Alt-Weekly, the Baltimore City paper, he hired me. And then I was a cartoonist. And so let me tell you, I mean, 20-somethings will be able to identify with this. When you finally get to tell people what you are at parties, it's a real relief. Like if if you've just spent the last few years adrift and not in any identifiable vocation. B. Cleban, Gary mm -hmm. Larson, Bizarro, all of those were contributors, I guess. Sorry, I just learned how to pronounce it and now I've forgotten which is correct. I think it's Cleban. It was him, really. I, I think I think Larson is a very good commercialized version of Cleban and Bizarro and Rhymes with Orange and all those others are pale imitators. He, he was the original of that genre. I just made this accidental lateral move from Garfield to Cleban's cat book in the late 70s. And the cat book, which is funny and also has that surreal quality to it, led me into his other much weirder, darker work, like, you know, books like Never Eat Anything Bigger Than Your Head and Whack Your Porcupine. And that stuff sort of blew my mind. And I also just thought, what a cool job that would be to get to write cartoon books. And so, in a way, you did. In, yeah, well, in fact, I did. I don't know if I'd call it a job, but I did do it. <laughs> and I, I kind of think that's important. To, I mean, that's why artists really do it, is so they don't have to get a real job. Did you get involved with the underground cartoon group? Yeah. Well, I don't know if we called them underground at that point. In the 90s, it was just alt comics, I think. Okay. When I when you say underground, I think of, you know, people like Art Crum and a, an earlier generation. But yeah, I did. And it was a real revelation to me because I, I had been drawing cartoons in a vacuum. I didn't know other cartoonists. But a friend dragged me to uh, the Small Press Expo in D.C., um, in 1996 or seven, and I met all these other cartoonists, some of whom later became among my best friends. And just having colleagues, I mean, it sounds a little silly to call cartoonists colleagues. It makes them sound like lawyers. But um, having colleagues in a, in a circle of fellow artists was really important to me. At what point did you start just writing? I mean, you were writing letters. At what mm -hmm. point... Did somebody suddenly publish something? Or? Aside from the film work, I mean, I never stopped writing things. And once in a while, I would send them out for publication. 
I had this one fluke piece published in the New York Times, uh, and this was at the urging of uh, a friend and ex-girlfriend of mine who's mentioned in the book. I call her Margot, the science reporter. It was during the debate over the taxonomical status of Pluto in 2006. I was very pro-Pluto. Margot insisted that she knew about my strong pro-Pluto feelings, and she insisted you should write something about this. She thought I should write it and got me to do it, and I sent it to the New York Times, and they published it. For about 12 hours, I was the go-to guy for the pro-Pluto position. I was actually on Nightline. But then I didn't really get published again for a few years, and then it was because I saw a friend of mine or an acquaintance of mine had written something for the Times for one of their ongoing blogs that I thought was just terrible. And I was like, well, for God's sake, if that guy can get published in the Times, I can get published. And so I sent in a piece for that same blog and they liked it. One editor in particular, he just, it resonated with him and he said, this blog series is about to end, but I'd like you to write for the next one. And he just became my go-to guy there. And we're still friends and have martinis every other month. And uh, I send everything I write to him first. And some of that has appeared in uh, your books. Yeah, all the short essays in my books are originally from the New York Times and, and things that he edited. These essays, the longer ones in particular, mm -hmm. breaking them down a little bit, they start either with a, a relationship that didn't work out and then move into a philosophical idea or start with the philosophical idea and move into the relationship that didn't work out. Mm -hmm including one that lasted 19 years with your cat. Maybe uh -huh. that worked out. <laughs> yeah, I would say it worked out. I mean, till death do us part. It's <laughs> as much as anything ever works out, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> she predeceased me. Did you have any pattern on those? How did these different kind of essays get constructed? Or was each one just happenstance that it worked out the way it did? No, it's a good question. I say that because one gets so few of them. But... I conceived the idea of writing this book with the overarching theme of romantic or sexual relationships as kind of a gimmick, frankly. It was in the mistaken hope that maybe I would get paid more if I had some, you know, gimmicky hook for the book. And it was a terrible mistake because then I was sort of straitjacketed into writing about this. And I was tormented by this worry that relationships are a very silly, frivolous thing to write about and only seem more so now that we have become a dystopia. And so I tried, for one thing, not to make any of them just conventional boyfriend-girlfriend right. relationships. They're right. all complicated or ambiguous in some way. And also I tried to make each essay about something else as well. The relationship is an occasion for writing about something else. Like in the R. Warren Terror essay, the procedure in that one, to answer your question, is one I would not recommend to writers because it is so laborious and trial and error, which is I had thought for a long time about writing about that relationship. It was a situation where I kind of accidentally fell in love with a good friend, and then we had to figure out how to fall back out and salvage the friendship. It's a situation lots of people have found themselves in, and the fact that we succeeded at it made it seem worth writing about. And I'd also always kind of wanted to write a history of the war on terror, sort of loosely modeled on Thucydides' history of the Peloponnesian War. And I wanted to write it from this very distant 
view. I wanted to write not about the, the geopolitics, but what it felt like in the air in America in those years. And I finally decided to write those essays when I realized they could be the same essay. The procedure I don't recommend is taking two disparate things like that and mashing them together and then trying in the wreckage to find where there are connections, thematic or otherwise. Well, the same thing happens in uh, a number of the other essays, particularly the, well, the uncertainty principle is a little bit easier because you were dating a pastor at the time. And so yeah. you're talking about God and atheism. That was mm-hmm. a little easier. Did that one come out of the end of the relationship or did it come out of wanting to finally write about your own atheism? I think that is a piece that the the spark for it was I was invited to speak at a religious conference. It's called the Mockingbird Conference. Why they invited me, I do not really know. Um, I guess there's a philosophical or moral component to some of my work, but I had to write something for them, and I wrote something that turned into that essay. I don't know. Sometimes you you got to get an assignment. You know, I, I seldom give my own students writing prompts, but I probably should because, you know, when an editor tells me, okay, I want you to write some essays about happiness or anxiety, um, it turns out you have ideas. And I don't know, there are all these filing cabinets in your head that you're not aware of that have been filling up over the years. And then if someone says, yank open the one that's marked religion, you've got all this stuff in there and you just got to assemble it into an essay. Well, that particular one, I think you call it at one point, what is it, The Hard Problem, which is mm. actually the name of a Tom Stoppard play oh, <laughs> about that issue. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. About how physical processes give rise to consciousness? Or that they don't, yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's his most well, recent read play. It. Yeah, that is a big, complicated essay. I mean, these are more formally ambitious than the ones in my last book because I'm trying to mash more and more things together. That one has got that relationship and my own history with religion and a sort of capsule biography of Nietzsche. There's a lot going on in it. There's also a lot going on in another essay called The Strange Situation. Yeah, that was a bitch to write. (laughs) I I assume it started with finding out that you were a subject in an experiment, or did it start out with you knowing you were a subject and going, I better write about this? Yeah, my mom had told me ever since I was a baby that she had entered me into an experiment at Johns Hopkins when I was an infant in which there was a room full of toys. The psychologists were interested in which ones I would play with. And she said that I played with all of them and there didn't show any preference. And at some point, I started to ruefully think of that as a sort of predictor of or metaphor for my romantic life. You know, I didn't want to commit to anything when there were so many alluring playthings lying around. So that was kind of the kernel of an essay. But that, that conceit would give me a few paragraphs, not an essay. It wasn't until years later. Oh, I'd just gone through a breakup with that pastor from the uncertainty principle. And she was someone I really loved and took seriously as a girlfriend. And since that hadn't worked out, I thought, what is it with me? You know, everybody arrives at these moments in life where you're like, how did I end up being this person I would rather not be? Why do I keep doing the same dumb thing? And unlike most people, I had this data available. Um, You know, I was in this, I was in this seminal experiment in child development called the strange situation, which wasn't about the toys at all. It 
is now the go-to method for evaluating infants' attachment styles or patterns, um, their attachment to their mothers generally. And those attachment patterns remain disturbingly stable in longitudinal studies. So you and I are 70-some percent likely to still be classified the same way we were or would have been as infants. So yeah, I set out about the project of researching this and seeing if I could find the data on myself. You did get to meet the woman who conducted the experiment, I, or I did. well, her assistant. Actually. No, no, she conducted the study I was in. Right, that, it, she it was, was nineteen, though. At she the was time. a grad student already at nineteen, so she was a very brilliant, ambitious girl. Evidently, mom remembered her as quite young. So she was not only still alive, but still professionally active as a psychoanalyst in the Baltimore, D.C. area. So I was able to track her down and talk to her. The data was not available. Mary Ainsworth, who created the strange situation, was something of, can I say hard ass on the radio? She was something of a hard ass about confidentiality. So all that data was anonymized. She didn't want to attach any kind of stigma to the mothers who had volunteered their children for this study by labeling them as insensitive mothers, didn't want to call any of their kids insecurely attached. So that researcher explained to me she would not have been able to answer my question even if she had wanted to, which I'm pretty sure she didn't. Uh, Because like most psychoanalysts, they're not in the business of answering your questions. They want you to answer the question. Right. And, you know, I didn't come around to any conclusion that essay except that we're stuck with these personalities, but they're not totally immutable. The philosophical question maybe at the heart of that essay is, can we change? And my answer is, yeah, but we almost never do because it's really hard. Also, we have to be aware of what we are and what we can change too. Well, right. Insight (laughs) is like step number one. I remember a girl who had read my book went out with me for a short time, and I disappointed her in the usual way. And she she said, you know, I, I, I guess I thought you would be different because you seem so self-aware. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm self-aware. That just doesn't help at all. Because step two turns out to be a much higher step. Which is making the change. Uh, yeah, it is actually changing something. Uh, what I found is that when you make a change, it lasts three weeks? There's some backsliding involved. <laughs> yeah. Tim Kreider, one of my favorite essays, and I wrote this book because I love you, is the very first one, which is about a circus mm-hmm. and a trip you took with a girlfriend, your fake husband, <laughs> on Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey. Was that a story you always wanted to write at it, some point? It was, and I did write it almost at once. This happened back in... I'm trying to remember, 1997, I think. And I wrote a version of it right away. I'm trying to remember if I had read David Foster Wallace at that point. I think I must have because I certainly wrote a very imitative essay in the style of David Foster Wallace about that experience. But I didn't really know how to write an essay yet. It was too long and just full of indiscriminate detail. And I hadn't learned yet that in a perverse way, the better the story you have, to tell, the harder it is to render that as an essay. Because like, I don't know, those stories are just good barroom stories. You tell them to people, they're really wowed, and it impresses them with how cool and fascinating your life is. But that's not something you want to do as a writer. You want to give the reader something. Um, So it took me 
yeah, 30 years to figure out what's the essay in that story. The story itself is, yeah, my, my friend was working for the Ringling Brothers Barnum Bailey Circus. She was a teacher for the children of circus performers and traveled on the train with the circus to all the downtown arenas where they performed. And they were going to Mexico City, which mid-90s was considered an extremely dangerous place. And she asked me to pretend to be her husband so that I could ride the train with her and go along. And it's a great story, but figuring out what's that about is the hard part. And I just refined it draft over draft until I came up with something that seemed to work. Was there a key in that particular story that made it work? It was just a laborious trial and error process. It ended up being about the fun of freaking yourself out about death. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, we, we had, in retrospect, really a delightful time imagining we were going to be kidnapped or killed at any moment. And that, of course, is what the circus specializes in, too. You know, lion tamers and high wire acts. And uh, one thing that I only realized very late in the writing process should be key is that at the time she had been diagnosed with a chronic disease with a high mortality rate. You know, I'm so close to the situation, it didn't even occur to me that that's fairly central. And I introduced that element really embarrassingly late in the writing process to, to lend it a little gravity. Well, one element of it that, of course, when you wrote it, you might not have even known, or maybe you did, was that the circus would be gone. Yeah, that's another thing, actually, that helped that essay is just the passage of time. Because back then we were imagining being hilariously murdered, and now we're imagining non-hilariously dying of old age. Because, uh, <laughs> you know, we're middle-aged people, and we're starting to fret about that sort of thing. And also, yeah, time passes and things disappear. And the circus closed forever last year. Is that right? Yeah. Well, you didn't mention when you're talking about the trapeze artists, of course, that now they have Cirque du Soleil. It's taken it to a different level. Yeah, sure. But the old school circus with elephants and, uh, yeah, it's a thing of the past. I mean, it was a thing of the past even then. It's a 19th century thing, really. I remember going to Madison Square Garden when mm -hmm. I was a little kid and one of those things that sticks in your in your mind, mm -hmm. which was that when the trapeze artist came in, somebody fell off, mm. bounced up, and landed on the concrete. And then the show just went right on. It and does go on. And my eight- or nine-year-old brain was going, did I see something or not? And I couldn't tell. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, as you talk in the essay, when those kinds of things happen... They did cover up like that. Yeah. Exactly. No, I think I think your uncertainty about whether you had really seen what you'd seen is exactly the desired effect. <laughs> they have a, there's a whole – I mean, it turns out when someone falls at the circus, they don't have, like, EMTs working for the circus. They call 911. But they do have a performance protocol, which is, like, they whip up a jaunty up-tempo number and the clowns run out in full force and, and just deploy maximum antics to try to distract all the kids which I'm sure is what happened. It stayed in my mind my entire life. It would. Yeah. <laughs> well, you saw it. <laughs> Do not doubt yourself. People fall. There were a couple serious injuries with the circus in the short time I was there. Kind of love about your relationship with the prostitute mm -hmm. versus 
the pastor that's also a long essay. That was not from the New York Times. No, that's also a long essay. It was one of those dumb formal conceits you come up with early in the writing of the book that then you're just married to, which is I'm going to bookend this book with chapters about a prostitute and a pastor. And I did. When I first started going out with that pastor, whom I call Diana in the book, we had to have this tentative little talk about her vocation because it turns out it's not a popular thing to be on um, OkCupid, a pastor. She has a hard time dating in New York City, godless New York City. And so she wanted to know, is this going to be a whole thing? Is this a deal breaker for you? And my answer to her was that, well, you know, I have a good friend who's a prostitute. And I don't really have a strong opinion about that. I, I think of it as kind of an interesting job. It shows that she's an unconventional person, and I like that. But frankly, it's boring to hear people talk about work. So, you know, I mean, I don't talk to my friend who works at NASA about electrical engineering or, or communication systems much either. We occasionally talk about, like, look, am I going to get to the moon before I die? Are there really aliens? But that's about it. Are there really aliens? He, uh, we have a code worked out, and so far he has not deployed it. The code we settled on many years ago was that occasionally I would ask him, Dave, you want another beer? And the prearranged code was that if he had learned in the meantime that aliens existed, he would say, no, I don't believe I'd care for another, which he would never say in real life. <laughs> he might occasionally say, I got to get up for work tomorrow. I better not. But he wouldn't say, I don't believe I'd care for another because that would never be true. And he never said that. Not to date. You once drew Ronald Reagan's head impaled on a bamboo pole and people got upset. I'm so pleased you remember. <laughs> they did. Well, that, you know, as with the 9-11 thing, it was a matter of timing. It was the week he died. And I remember Reagan's election. I was, I guess, 13 years old. And all idiots in the middle school cafeteria were pro-Reagan because he would be tough and kick some ass. And I liked Jimmy Carter. Because uh, even back then, it was evident to me that Carter was an honest man, you know, doing the best he could. And Ronald Reagan was just a greasy salesman telling people what they wanted to hear, an opinion that has changed not one bit in the intervening decades. Right. And he won, and I wept because it was my first understanding that that's how things would go. And it still kind of makes me want to weep when that happens, <laughs> <laughs> which it does basically every day. <laughs> And so, you know, the Reagan years were the beginning of a lot of trends that continue to corrode democracy and cheat people. And when he died, there were all these, I mean, maybe you remember, there was this sort of deluge of treacle in the media all about the great communicator and the man who tore down the Berlin Wall and won the Cold War. And I just wasn't having it. It was, it was, I can't, I don't know what profanities I'm allowed to say on the radio, but you know, it was untrue. <laughs> <laughs> it was bull. <laughs> yeah. So I drew a picture of Ronald Reagan's disembodied head atop a bamboo pole. I, I live in a place in Maryland that has a bamboo grove. And so I was really imagining me and my friends placing it atop the pole and then uh, 
celebrating. Someone has placed panties on his head with a stick in the drawing. <laughs> yeah, some people were mad. But that was not unpredictable. You know, a, a difference between being a semi-serious writer and a cartoonist is that if my writing offends people now, in some cases it kind of bothers me because I feel, you know, if I feel that they have been justifiably offended because now my job is to try as hard as I can to be intellectually honest and fair and truthful, whatever that means. But if someone was offended by something I drew as a cartoonist, I was like, oh, boo, 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 boo. How sad for you. Because that was my job to offend people. I wasn't supposed to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jesus versus Jesus. That is, that cartoon, well, we should explain that, that the latter Jesus is spelled J-E-E-Z-U-S. And that is the kind of blonde, blow-dried American Christ with a machine gun and a flag and a little baby on his shoulder. Uh, that still turns up on the Internet as kind of a meme. It, gets, it, it, it appears on, you know, I'm told, Imager or Reddit once in a while. And you don't get a penny for it? No. <laughs> Does that bother you? Uh, well, yeah. You know, periodically kids post... Gary Larson cartoons online and someone always comments, you know, he doesn't want his cartoons posted online. And, you know, someone else always says, oh, come on. It's the 21st century. I love these cartoons, but screw that guy who drew them. Uh, yeah, it bothers me that it's almost impossible for artists to make money in the digital age. I mean, the first time I heard the word content provider, I knew we were all doomed. You wrote an essay about a great unknown American novel from the 1960s called Stoner by John Williams. I'd never heard of it. Well, somebody writes some version of that essay once every few years. It's, it's, he's really a writer's writer. He wrote four novels, one of which almost no one's ever read. And the three novels that people know are very different and all on a deep level kind of the same. And they're all indescribably great and it's the indescribably part that we're going to run into trouble with here it's very difficult to convey to people what is so great about those novels but i remember reading the first paragraph or the first page at a friend's house and i immediately knew i would read this book someday uh, you could just tell there's a certain quiet assurance to the prose you can tell he is the kind of master I don't know. I mean, I, I think there's just certain violins or Chinese vases that experts can look at and immediately identify it as the work of a great master. And it's prose like that. It's not ostentatious. It's not ornate Faulknerian prose. It's not like Cormac McCarthy or Thomas Pynchon. It's very quiet, perfect prose. And uh, the story, if I were to describe it to you, would sound so boring you wouldn't read the book. Uh, but it's just one of the greatest books you'll ever read. <laughs> and it's called Stoner by John Williams. And yeah, I guess I'm, people can find it somewhere. Oh, of course. Is it, it is it in print? Yeah, it's been reprinted recently, and I'm blanking out by whom. You should look it up. Yeah, I mean, someone actually made a documentary uh, going around talking to various people who admired it, including me. Some writer of note will periodically write an essay like that, urging people to read this. It's one of the great American novels. But... I don't know. It's not about a millionaire who gets murdered. It's not about taking a fugitive slave on a trip down the river. It doesn't have a flashy plot. It's about an academic who dies in obscurity. It reminded me, I'm reading about a little bit of Updike just 
where nothing kind of happens. Yeah. In a way, I wouldn't compare it to Updike. I understand that, that comparison on the surface, but I don't know. Stoner is writing his way around something ineffable. Stoner is a novel about a Midwestern academic. Augustus is a book about Augustus Caesar. And uh, Butcher's Crossing is a Western about a buffalo hunt. They could not be more different superficially. A little like Stanley Kubrick's films. They're all wildly different genres, but in a way, it's all the same film. I was saving one more essay, which is orientation. Oh, I was thinking, please let it not be orientation. (laughs) (laughs) Well, aside from the fact that you make up Scott College, but it's really Sarah Lawrence, not a big deal. Mm -hmm. You can find it online. Yeah, it's not a state secret where I teach. (laughs) Why did you you do that? You said before we went on the air that it was more about you than anything else. Why did you change the name? I don't know. Um, I, I always change my friends' names when I write about them. And that's for their protection. I would like to invade their privacy as little as possible. But I think it also gives me a little bit of necessary distance from them. There's there's something very dispassionate and clinical about writing about people. And it, it, it threatens to distance you from them or create a sort of barrier between you if you're not careful. Because you, you have to look at them not so much face-to-face as friends, but, you know, in a much more... detached way. Detached compassion, as doctors say. Well, it's also odd because you might say things which would upset them if their real name was there. Indeed, sometimes that happens. But with the institution, it wasn't so much protecting their reputation. It was just for me, it it was a way of letting me write about it, um, slightly fictionalizing it. Also, one of the great time-wasting pleasures of writing a book is thinking up names. And and I, I named the college and the building in which I taught after two of my friends who were both alumni of Sarah Lawrence. There are two elements, one of which is, of course, when you wrote it, it was before, I would assume, the Me Too movement. Yeah, that all happened as this book was about to come out. And it's still not clear to me whether that is a fortuitous or really unfortunate time in which to release a book about male-female relationships. We will find out. <laughs> if I am Particularly rendered... when the male is the professor and the females are the students. <laughs> uh, well, let me make clear. I never... the the It's clear. I never had an affair with a student, nor would I. That's an essay that's partly about teaching for the first time and being in charge of all these much younger women, and a sort of flashback to a relationship I'd had years earlier with a much younger woman. It comes up, of course, because you are very clear over and over when people say to you, oh, all these girls, Mm -hmm. and you're going, I'm the teacher. Right. So you you kind of pass with flying colors in the essay. Well, I did write the essay. (laughs) Um, That was a very... In, in a way, tonally, it was the hardest essay in the book to write because I was writing about something I felt bad about. And it was also something I felt defensive about. And I say in the essay that self-justification and self-flagellation are both pretty suspect. You know, there's an agenda with each of them. And they're also both pretty tedious. You know, they're not for the reader. They're for the writer. Are you sometimes afraid you'll give too much away in an essay, or does that mean that you should go deeper? Um, Sometimes I am afraid of that, although it's it's not usually about the things you would think. 
if I'm able to write about something, it's either already behind me or else writing becomes a way of getting past it. And, you know, it's been my experience that the deeper you go and the more shameful the secret you exhume, the more mail you get from people sagging with relief saying, oh my God, I can't believe you said that. I thought it was just me. You know, you came out and said the thing I'd always thought or felt but never known how to put into words. So I assume that all my shameful secrets are pretty boring and commonplace. And whatever is true of me is more or less universally true. What I've discovered interviewing fiction writers over the years and a curious phenomenon is that the more specific they are, Mm -hmm. in this case you writing about the real you uh, or them writing about fictional characters, the more specific they make the characters on some level, the more universal the characters become. Yeah, I try to impart this lesson to my students, though I don't know if I succeed. I mean, you know, they have big ambitions, and we all do. I mean, you want to write, Court McCarthy says he doesn't see any point in writing about anything except for life, death, and God. Um, and you want to write about the biggest things, but it turns out the only way in is through the little things. You have to get in through the mundane. And so, yeah, the more specific you are, the more universal it turns out to be. And, of course, if you're universal and try to be universal, there's no empathy and it falls flat, I would guess. Yeah. Well, yeah, you would fall into, I, I don't know, empty generalizations. To answer your original question, the things that I worry about giving away aren't things that are going to embarrass me so much. I mean, I worry about that a little. You couldn't write anything if you had to imagine your mom reading over your shoulder the whole time. And right. it's not pleasant to imagine my mom reading some parts of this book, but hi, mom. But the things I worry about giving away are things that are precious to me, like the moment you knew you were in love with someone. Like if you're telling a story about falling in love, you've got to have moments like that. But sometimes you decide the real one that's just for me or that's just for us. You know, you can't give away everything. And it's not because it's embarrassing or a secret. It's because it's yours. And, I mean, you notice that I've tried to keep a lot of personal information about myself off the Internet. That's no longer really possible in, in total. But in a way, I'm private. I'm, I'm real calculated about what I reveal in these books. Making your own life, the raw material of your own life, into art means you're giving a lot of stuff away. So you have to be very protective of what you want to keep. I think that's why a lot of people write fiction. Yeah. Well, I'm just bad at making stuff up. <laughs> I mean, I, there. this is what essays were before we knew they were essays. They were Romana Clefs. Well, <laughs> you change everyone's name and call it a novel. Well, let, let's go back to that. At what point, what did you read? Did you read anything specific that said to you, Maybe David Sedaris. Did you read something that said to you, this is what I can do? I mean, beyond the shorter essays in the New York Times. Well, in a way, the first thing I read by uh, David Foster Wallace that made me aware of him as a writer, I think I'd read something else first without knowing it was the same person, was his famous cruise ship essay, Shipping Out in um, Harper's. It almost came as a relief to me because at that time I was a cartoonist and what I thought of as a failed or frustrated writer. Because reading him, I thought, oh, okay, well, this is the writer I would be if I were a much better writer than I am. So I felt almost let off the hook. Okay, someone else is doing this. 
better than I ever could. And of course, he died, which didn't mean I had to step in and fill his shoes because nobody, least of all me, could. But I think he had illustrated what an essay could be for our generation. And, and I, I think he was influential on most writers my age. Well, also, I know Sedaris and Rakoff, Rakoff mm-hmm. came out of This American Life as yeah, well. I've read them since, but I wasn't listening to that show or reading them at that time. I've read some Rakoff. I've only read a couple things by David Sedaris, believe yeah. it or not. A number of women are doing it now. It's yeah. become a much bigger thing, and now you're teaching it. Yeah. Well, I certainly had to take a crash course in essays before I taught one. But I haven't read all that many contemporary essayists or memoirists. I mean, I teach, like, the first week of class, I'll teach a chapter from Moby Dick, which is partly journalism, we forget. Uh, Teach an MFK Fisher essay, an E.B. White, a David Foster Wallace, and, um, oh, and a comic by a guy named John Porcellino does beautiful... I guess you'd call them autobiographical comics called King Cat. Uh, I, want, I want to give them a sort of handful of essays that illustrate the diversity of the form, but they all are essays that do what we were talking about. They get into the big universal life and death questions through a variety of incredibly specific subjects. It sounds as if, Tim Kreider, that when you were told or when you decided to t- teach the class suddenly you had to kind of disembowel your own essays to figure out what the hell you were doing? Yeah. I I wonder if that's something that all teachers have to go through. I mean, there's a way in which the process has to be, you have to be a little bit unaware of what you're doing even to get it done, right? right? At least in the first draft phase. Uh, There's something a little bit dangerous about going and, you know, killing the goose that lays the golden eggs. (laughs) But yeah, I, I... I do to some extent have to reverse engineer what I do. I mean, you just have to do that in order to explain anything you know how to do to someone who doesn't know how to do it. But really, I kind of, I mean, I shouldn't say this because people are paying lots of money for their educations, but I kind of feel like writing professors are glorified study hall monitors. Like, all you can do to be a writer is read and write an awful lot. So you stand over them occasionally saying wise things and make them write and read a lot and Years from now, maybe they'll be writers. <laughs> and then, as you say in your essay, then you have to grade them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I'm doing that on this book tour. <laughs> uh, Tim Kreider, it sounds as if each book, and this is, what, the third book of essays? Well, it's a sec. It depends. I, I kind uh, of one of the book was half gradually half. from cartoon to essayist. Yeah. yeah. That you're beginning to get a handle on it? On on writing essays? Yeah. Well, I don't know. You tell me. I mean, I... <laughs> I think you are, I but... can't tell how this book is. I'm the last person in the world anyone should ask. Like I said, I, I tried to make these more formally ambitious essays because you get bored if you just do the thing you're already good at over and over again. I mean, everybody can um, resentfully think of artists like that, um, and they get boring. And I would think you would get bored, unless, of course, you're making tons of money at it, which I'm not. But to keep yourself interested, you got to keep making them more ambitious. And the more ambitious they get, the more likely it becomes you'll fail occasionally. Uh, Your latest essay, actually, which is in the New York Times, it's an essay about Valentine's Day, mm-hmm. taking your girlfriend to a bar. 
<laughs> well, not taking her, met her there. We had we had uh, prearranged to meet there, uh, and it was a bar neither of us had ever been to. And we would pretend to be strangers, and I would attempt to That's pick great her idea. up. <laughs> I, yeah, we thought it was a great idea. We we felt a little stupid going into it. it it's not really our thing. We're not like big role players. When you were doing it, were you thinking, hmm, this would be an idea for us? For an essay? Yeah. Uh, I can't remember. I mean, in a way, in order to live your life, you've, if, you're, if you're a writer, you've got to have in the back of your mind at all times that this could be something you write about. But if you're going to live a life as a human being, that can't be in the forefront of your mind. You can't do stuff for material. You have to do stuff for the normal dumb reasons you do stuff as a human being. <laughs> Tim Kreider, now uh, I wrote this book because I love you was out. One other thing, the title, where did that come from? <laughs> well, I have a good friend who uh, helps me come up with a lot of my titles. He uh, studied poetry at the Iowa Writers Workshop, and he doesn't really write much poetry anymore, but he's still great with the title. And at the time I had conceived of writing the next book, but I don't think I'd written any of it yet. I was all horribly crushed out on someone, and his proposal was that I should write a massive thousand-page tome and crawl to her and plop it down in front of her, and it should be called I Love You and then her name. <laughs> and then I would I presumably die, like John Henry dropping his hammer. <laughs> Uh, so that was the joke title of the book at first. I love you, you know, your name here. And it ended up just being called I Wrote This Book Because I Love You. Uh, and the original cover illustration was going to be basically that situation, me dropping dead and plopping this <laughs> Titanic manuscript at some indifferent woman's feet. Uh, it sounds as if you have enough short essays to put together another book with longer ones that you still need to write. I have this vague idea of writing, um, I'm, you know, it's very hard not to write about politics right now. And I don't really want to go back to writing about in a topical this week's scandal way, but in sort of a big picture way, what the, what the culture and what the civilization feels like now in its decline. And I have this idea of writing something like a guide to dystopia. I have all these short essays about, you know, every everything from... Donald Trump being a bad fascist to, you know, why the internet is a bad thing. Or I wrote a nice eulogy for Ray Bradbury, the science fiction writer. Uh, I feel like all these things are thematically related and could go into a book. But yeah, the problem would be I would then have to write the longer essays that would fill that out, which is another five years <laughs> at the rate I work. And you can listen to other interviews either as Radio Olinsky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>